Okay. Okay. It's quite a sort of ducky one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Follow that. Follow that. That train Follow of thought. That. Yeah. Really? There we go. Oh my god. Am I at risk of getting one right here? Oh my god. Well, don't oh overrate yourself. But like. Oh gosh. The sound is the clue. If that makes sense. Quack. The sound is a quack. Uh huh. The quack is the clue. Yeah. Is it is it called like the dabbling frog or something? No, you're overthinking about it. Return to the quack. Okay. The quacking frog. Hey, hey. Are you serious? There you go. Yeah, the quacking frog. I got it uh, right. Crinia georgiana, aka the quacking. What a frog. moment! <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> tell me more about this beast. Well, what does it do except for quack? What does it do? I mean, it does frog stuff. It's can be seen in sort of temporary pools. It's from the southwest of Australia, and you would hear this quacking in the sort of middle of the year, July, August sort of time. They're beautiful little frogs. 4.5 centimetres-ish, sort of lovely warm orange at times to a sort of darker brown. They have very red sort of armpits and uh, areas next to the back legs. Yeah, lovely little frogs. They're cool. Yeah. There's a photo of them sort of battling. I mean, I'm on Wikipedia here, <laughs> which is very funny. It looks like they have a little bit of warfare going on. Two male quacking frogs wrestling. Yeah, so they're wrestlers. Yes. Male-male interaction. The they're males are meant it. to have larger arms, presumably for the wrestling. Wow. Yeah, the quacking frogs interact with each other for territory using their arm to wrestle. <laughs> Just imagining them like sitting down across the table from each other, like, yeah, I'm <laughs> with the occasional quack. With the, yeah, wow, very nice, very good. I can't believe I got them right. You really threw me a bone there by giving me something that's quite so easy. Although you know, in the past, that hasn't always been enough to uh, well, clinch the correct answer. You know, come on, like it's a difficult one task. One. There's a lot of frogs out. <laughs> Crinia georgiana. Yeah. Okay, quacking frog. We're one and one now, Ben. We got one each. Yeah, that's amazing. What a day. What a day. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm tom major co-hosting as always ben marshall and this is the herpetological highlights podcast the podcast about reptile amphibian science what's coming out what's happening in the world of our uh, slippery and scaled cousins and we're not just talking about quacking frogs today we've also got a paper about adders our only venomous snake here in the uk we love them dearly because they are very cool and they are the only one. And a true yeah, viper. I guess, uh, yeah, should we just introduce the paper? It's by Turner and McLean, published in 2022. Microclimate driven trends in spring emergence phenology in a temperate reptile of a pair of berries. Evidence for a potential climate trap. <laughs> Yes, yeah. climate trap. So before we go on to t too much about climate traps and, um, you know, climate change, climate change is obviously a huge thing for uh, not only humans, Everything. but also the animals with which <laughs> we share Everything that exists on the and planet. Sometimes on the podcast, it feels like we don't do enough about climate change, don't mention it enough. And I think the sort of community of biology at large, you can go to whole conferences about wildlife and people talk about threats and climate change still now sometimes doesn't even seem to get a look in or at least not enough of a look in for yeah. the sort of i mean i think that's because a lot of the solutions if you're at a wildlife specific sort of conference it's not something that too you big. solve by studying wildlife right whereas no, something like true. i don't know vehicle collisions 
with wildlife, you need to know about the behavior of the animal to know whether it, you know, whether you can build overpasses or underpasses or whatever and the animal actually use them. Like, why are they being hit? Where are they being hit? Like, you need to know a lot about the animal for that. Climate change, you don't need to as much because the solutions are very human focused. It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to train an animal or something, train a wild population to overcome an ever-increasing or ever more erratic <sighs> weather pattern or something. Like it's hmm. maybe there are some examples out there where you could, but I think in terms of solutions, it's a lot harder to come from the animal point of view when it comes to climate stuff. So I would assume it was that. I like that. That completely excuses us. So, well, have you got? <laughs> <laughs> what what you'll yeah, see, you're right. with, yeah, I mean, right. this paper as well. What you'll see with a lot of them is there'll be papers about how sort of the climate crisis will impact an animal, and sort of raising the alarm. But the solutions are sort of how to mitigate that. It's never how to stop it because how to stop it comes from somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that is completely fair. So, climate change we've mentioned now. Animals obviously have evolutionary responses to things in their environment, right? Like you're an animal. Yep. You've spent the last however many million years tweaking, perfecting. Oh God, there's been a change in the time. And now we're talking about geological timescales, many, many millions of individuals slowly perfecting the craft of being that animal. So I take exception to the word perfection, but all right. Exception to perfection. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Well, let's, you know, I would say muddling on. Yeah, 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 meddling on. But animals are evolving and changing, and sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes, every now and again, an animal will think, basically, it will be evolved in such a way that something appears like it will benefit them, but actually it has a cost to them and actually can reduce their fitness. And that is what an ecological trap is. It's where an animal mistakenly thinks a particular environment or a particular... It doesn't even have to be a habitat. It can be like something small, like a patch of pavement can benefit them in some way but it's a mistake it's a mistake they've accidentally triggered one of their survival mechanisms in the wrong way and then they ended up in a trap yeah so ben you're talking evolution scales but i think smaller scales is a sort of nicer example you can think of like snakes basking on roads you've got good here we go snake okay warm location that's going to benefit it going to benefit its its survival it can get up to temperature faster it can be nice and toasty but downside is it could get run over but the sort of mm. motivations in the snake aren't potentially aware of the cost, but the incentives are all there and all acting upon it. And there's your trap. It's coaxed in by one, but then punished by something that isn't being factored in. Yeah. When I get my soundboard, Ben, this is where I would have had that, what's a trap thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the guy from Star, I don't know his name. Admiral. The, the, Admiral. Admiral Akbar, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Banging example, snakes on roads, seems warm, but actually it's a recipe for what Wolfgang calls Dunlop Dunlop disease. Oh. A little bit bleak. I've got another example. There's these birds called a black cap. It's a bird. It looks like it's wearing a little black cap. Type of warbler. Oh, nice. So they are migratory birds. When they first return to their breeding habitat, there's big plantation of exotic black locust trees and they're evergreen, right? So when they first arrive at their breeding habitat, these exotic trees have already got loads of foliage. They look like the perfect place to nest. So the birds flock over there. They're like, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, great. This is so leafy, wicked. But little do they know that it's because the leaves haven't fully come out on the other trees yet. And the other trees actually make for better, more covered nesting areas. Mm. So they flood to this 
area of introduced woodland. But then once they're there, they're less likely to have successful fledglings because there's actually less protection than it looks like. And so these early leafing shrubs lure the blackcaps into nesting somewhere bad. And this is actually doubly interesting because in the unsuitable black locust tree plantations, they actually have much higher densities of breeding birds. So if you were a naive ecologist and you went there, you'd be like, oh, look at the density of nests. This is where they like to nest. This is the kind of environment we need to provide for them. But actually, no, the birds are just making a mistake en masse. And the ones which don't nest in those areas are actually more successful. But there's fewer of them, potentially. Yeah, and there's fewer of them. But they're doing much, much better. That's such a nightmare to try and study and pick apart, though. Yeah, Yeah. it's a pain. I've got some other examples. Obviously, you know, I think insects, from from the course of my reading, it seems like insects and other invertebrates are a little bit more susceptible to climate traps, or maybe they're just smaller scale and easy to study. I don't know. But I think I don't want to start sort of making out like insects and other invertebrates are inferior because of their tiny brains. But I do think that they generally have a little bit less flexibility in their willingness to sort of like adapt and change to things which are they're confronted with you know what i mean like i don't mean to gloat but as a human being i'm pretty sure we're the most flexible of all and that's a large part of our success insects you know they're just like they're just coded to do a few different things and they just do them regardless <laughs> so i think <laughs> those, those poor insects yeah oh. sorry insects i didn't mean to completely annihilate your character but this one, you know, dragonflies, they, they're looking, they're flying around looking, looking, looking for water because that's what they hunt over. Apparently, if there's been a crude oil spill, because it's like super, super shiny, they'll just go land on it. They love it. They can't resist it and they die. They all die. So that's deeply unfortunate, but it's just the sort of factor of their visual system. Yeah. And there's another similar example. Mayflies, apparently. Asphalt reflects polarized light at like a supernormal intensity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so although it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily affect us but to them it looks like so shiny and so you can actually see it if you have uh polarizing lenses on your sunglasses there are certain road surfaces certain times of the day you will just get wonderful shimmering rainbows on uh, on the road surface and does it attract you to lay your eggs there or do you just ignore it i have the capacity to ignore it like yeah, yeah. You see i've never laid an egg on a, the on a rainbowy road <laughs> so yeah and actually it's kind of cool because a lot of animals that migrate are good study objects for climate like ecological traps because they're kind of coming and going they're susceptible to falling into them when they come back i just thought of but another one, one bring it back to herpetology yeah snakes and going into domestic dwellings after high rodent abundances uh, decent yeah. microclimate Tasty snacks, bashed on the head by humans as your trap. Mm, yeah. Brutal. So we're talking specifically, though, most of these ones haven't really been climate traps. They've been ecological traps, but climate traps are a specific type of ecological trap where, well, it's just to do with climate, really. And in the example we're talking about, we're talking about adders. So adders living in high latitudes. And, you know, this is a species which is widespread across Europe. And they do live and in cold Asia. places and yeah, and Asia even, yeah, even into Asia. And so, hence the name, common name, Eurasian viper. But what that means is that when it gets cold, they can't just slither off somewhere warmer. You know, they are where they are. They're heathland or scrub. 
is theirs and they have to live according to the temperature of the day they find themselves in. So when it gets cold, adders go underground. So over the course of a year in the UK here, we have a cold winter, gets really cold between like November and February. It's cold and starts to get a bit warmer. And in that period that it's cold, the adders go underground, they hibernate. They generally go in sort of like little burrows, tree root complexes in between rocks trying to avoid the frost and they talk about in this paper you generally see adders in March you used to first see them in April now it's March and to be honest for me personally people start telling me they've seen adders in January and February now again pretty used to seeing them in February you know it's warming up and what that means is that a lot of animals are changing when they hibernate and adders are no exception they're coming out earlier and there's good evidence for this across their range but it is a bit of a weird one isn't it Ben because you're thinking right This paper is about adders in a climate trap getting exposed to frost. How is it? Climate change is making it warmer. How can it be that this is leading to adders getting hurt by frost? Do you think there'd be less frost? Yeah, that'd be the natural assumption. Warmer equals less frost, yeah. And it's true, isn't it? There is less frost. That doesn't help the adders because what they assume here is that there's basically... They counted up like cumulative hours of temperature. So like they added up the temperature. Say it was like... 15 degrees at five that'd be way too cold say it was like four degrees at 5 a.m they're like adding all these numbers up and they think there's like a certain tipping point where it's like been warm enough for long enough that the adders come out yeah i think there was a point in the paper that they describe it as number of hours that have been over a set temperature so you can think of it as like a duration over a temperature that might be required for an adder to move or to wake up that's where it sort of really clicked for me is when you're thinking about it, yeah, a period of time over a threshold. Right. So they don't get tricked. If you get one warm day, the adders won't all pop out and get frozen. They sort of will wait until it hits a certain prolonged above a certain temperature. Yeah. It's a little bit more complicated because they will do that. They will just come out for a day and then go back under. But right. like... <laughs> they're like, yeah, for the purpose of this, it's like, oh, they're either out of hibernation or they're not. Yes. And they're sort of out, out, staying out when it's like, yeah, reached a certain point. One of the effects that climate change is having is that it's making more warmer days early in the year. So you're finding that the early parts of spring and the end of winter are having more warm days. And that is causing the threshold that adders are looking for to be reached earlier. So although there's fewer frosts, they're coming out earlier. And then you can still have frosty days. You can have extended cold snaps in spring and in the late winter. So they're reaching this threshold where they come out early. But then because they've come out early, they're more likely to be exposed to frost because it's earlier in the year. There's a higher chance that there will still be frosts to come. So although there are less frosts overall, them coming out earlier means they're much more likely to be exposed to frost. And, you know, we had the same this year. We had some properly warm days in February where you're like, well, what? And all the plants in the garden start flowering. I saw a moth. I was like, what are you doing, mate? I saw some bees. And then next thing you know, it's a frost for five days. And it's exactly that. Get trashed by the frost. Bees and things have, have fewer fewer resources to eat they've all been coaxed out and tricked yeah a lot of animals which live in cold cold places are frost tolerant they can actually withstand being frozen adders really not so much like they can go for a few hours at like minus three there was a paper in like the early 2000s where they chilled some adders yeah they froze some adders (laughs) and um yeah they can basically withstand a few hours below zero but not an entire day if they were frozen for a day dead they don't have any freeze tolerance properly well yeah i guess a few hours at very cold they probably didn't freeze very much 
But they definitely don't. Well, exactly. Get They've frozen. got no real mechanism for warming themselves back up, do they? That's the real kicker here isn't it it's not it's not like they've <laughs> got antifreeze in, in their blood like those wonderful northern wood frogs yeah yeah so yeah they die if they're too cold so it's important that they don't and uh, they basically this paper they were mapping out all the places they had this like very sophisticated microclimate model mm-hmm. and they looked at places where adders for cornwall yeah, yeah. cornwall only which is in the southwest of the uk it's like the little foot of it as you look at uk it's the foot in the bottom bottom left on the map and yeah, they just looked, oh yeah, okay, are there places where this temperature is reaching high enough early enough for long enough that the adders are emerging? And if so, are there areas where after that emergence time has been reached, there are subsequently frosts? And is that amount of frost exposure changing over time? And they mm-hmm. produced a lovely figure with all of their things, all of their spots, whether or not it was blue, as in they're exposed to less frost or red, exposed to more frost. And if you look at the map, there's a bunch of spots on it which are red, where adders are in fact, despite the fact that climate change is causing a warming, they're actually being exposed to more frost as they are tricked yeah. into coming out earlier. This is since uh, 1983, we should mention. 1983 to 2017, that's the data set that this is based on. Indeed, yeah. This is not predictive stuff, because often with a climate change thing, it's like, okay, under this climate scenario, this is what we'd expect. This is what has already occurred relative to 1983. Yeah. Yeah. And they generally said that it seemed to be worse in coastal areas rather than inland areas. Mm -hmm. And that's because the coasts generally warm more slowly because of the sea. Yeah, you've got that thermal momentum of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Sea's cold after winter and it takes longer to warm up. Inland, you know, that's not to say there were no inland sites which experienced more frost. There were quite a few, but by and large, the effect was worse on the coasts and particularly in the very southern tip of Cornwall where it's well, quite exposed, I should think. Mm. Although you'd think it would be colder on the top because that's where the winds are coming from off the Atlantic. But no, south yeah. southwesterlies. Oh, are they mostly south. I don't know much about wind, mate. I tried to um, windsurf once, and it was a disaster. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were getting northern winds, yeah, it'd be horribly cold. But because they're just way rarer, I think that your southwesterlies are going to dominate. That would be my guess. That would be my yeah, guess. Yeah, and that, that would explain why it's the southern tip, which is really yeah. suffering the yeah. most from this increase in ground frost. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this. This is cool application of some very complicated climate modelling, which we've kind of downplayed because it's pretty dense. But um, Oh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah the, I mean, just in sort of a brief sort of thing, they had a whole model that, that's sort of predicting the underground temperatures at different depths and things like that. It's It's really really impressive and there's a lot of methodological detail that we've just sort of glossed over for the sake of generally what's happening to adders but um we haven't put any numbers on this actually like temperature change in general because we've yeah a reduction of like five hours frost hours from beginning to end 83 to 2017 but despite that reduction we're still seeing this like an increase a significant increase in their exposure to the frost kind of typifies what you've been saying is less frost but still more exposure because of this climate trap scenario of generally warmer warmer winters basically and a change of what 28 days yeah so a month shift in that emergence time which is a hell of a lot an extra month out when you're only out for sort of six months is a big change yeah and yeah, in some animals it can be a benefit, in some animals it can be a cost. It really depends on a whole load of factors which uh, we don't really fully understand for right. yet. And this could swing back around too. If the frost hours decreased, 
even further and sort of realigned with the emergence times, then we're you know you'd probably be in a net positive for the adders because they'd have a longer activity period in the year. But um, they give an example, like a example contrast of a cold year to a warm year. Cold year with the sort of delayed emergence, they're only exposed to an hour. And then a different year, 1995, where it's a warm, a sort of warm winter that prompts that initial emergence. They're exposed for 117 hours of frost post-emergence, which, considering you're saying what they can survive three hours <laughs> of sub, yeah. sub-zero, uh, 117 is a lot to get through in terms of finding somewhere to dip back into to avoid getting caught out in the cold. Yeah, just crazy, crazy. Yeah, I was just thinking about what it would be like to be an adder stuck out in the frost. It would oh. be nightmarish. So cold you can barely move, but all you want to do is get back underground. Ah! Yeah, choose to the bone. Yeah. Anyway, so there we go. That's uh, the uh, ecological trap, specifically the climate trap, facing adders on the southwest of England. Let's move on, shall we, from one brown viper species to another. We got our species of the bi week. And this week we have a paper by Catalam, Santra, Owens, Selvan, Mukherjee, Graham, Togradu, Barty, Shi, Shankar, and Malhotra 2022. Phylogenetic and morphological analysis of Gloidius Himalayanus with the description of a new species published in the European Journal of Taxonomy. So, whole squad of academics here spread across the UK and India, um, many of whom friends of ours from Bangui University. So it's cool to see that. And yeah, they, they did some field work in India. So Gloidius Himalayanus. Gloidius are like these little pit vipers. We've talked about them on the podcast a few times before. These little tiny pit vipers. They're brown, generally speaking. And Gloidius Himalayanus specifically is the only species that's found on the southern slopes of the Himalayan range. How'd they get over there? How did they get over there, mate? Goodness only knows. Dropped by an eagle. That's what I reckon. Could <laughs> Could have been. But yeah, essentially there was a phylogeny came out recently showing that Gloidius Himalayanus was really divergent from all the other species of Gloidius. It also holds the record for the highest occurring snake species at 4,877 metres. So round of applause for Gloidius. That sounds not the kind of altitude I'd want to live at. And I have the advantage of produce my own heat yes so that's quite impressive and yeah they've kind of followed on from that by going to Himachal Pradesh and looking at the Gloidius there and yeah they've done some morphological and genetic analysis and found out it is in fact does warrant being described as a new species and what have they called it they've called it Gloidius chambensis, which means from Chamba, which is a reference to the species being distributed in the Chamba district of India. And they suggest the common name, the Chamba pit viper, which is just great, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, it's just a cool little snake. I have to say, it's one of those ones which is just understated in its beauty. It's like sort of a tanny browny base colour, but with... It looks like it's made of clay, like a, a gently fired clay. The picture they have of it in life all sort of half coiled up looks sort of dusty which is a weird way to describe an animal that's probably not covered in dust but it looks dusty it does look dusty but yeah it's a really nice little snake it's small isn't it how big are we talking 42 and a half centimeters total length snout vent of 34 standard nice nice and the habitat 
just looks like this gigantic valley, basically. Slightly wooded, looks like there's quite a bit of human activity around, a few farms, but yeah, generally this sort of like alpine environment. Yeah, very uh, V-shaped valley with interlocking yeah. spurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually caught up with Suresh, who is the lead author of this paper, to ask him about its discovery and whether he could shed any more light on the uh, environment in which this snake is found and its relationship with people. So Suresh, uh, thank you very much for joining me, mate, and congratulations on uh, the description of this new viper species. It's really cool. We've been enjoying it. One of the things I was curious about, when you guys first kind of stumbled across this snake, did you know straight away that this was a new species or was it a bit of a surprise? Did it take a bit of working out? Well, so when I, I actually came onto it, not late, but I came on it about six months into the Himachal work. And it was Vishal and Anita who first thought there was a new species that might be there within this clade. But what they first thought was it was actually going to be a, the it was going to be a low elevation versus high elevation distinction. Because there is this low elevation population that looked really distinct. But then when I came on board and then we started doing all the field work for it and collecting samples, all the genetic data backed up that it's actually a split of that particular valley versus the rest of the population that we sampled. So there was so the low elevation also sat in the true Himalayan eastern clade. And the rest of the Chamba population was the one that was distinct. Very cool. So it is limited to the Chamba Valley, hence the name uh, yeah. Chambensis, Gloidius Chambensis, which, yeah, we really appreciate that name. I think it's cool. Um, was there much discussion about the name or was that something that was just like someone suggested it and then, yeah, let's go for it? So I've personally never been a massive fan of taxonomic names that are, are a bit off and a bit weird. Um, I, I prefer having names that sort of describe something about the snake, so either some kind of physical description of it or a description of, in this case, the location that it might be found in. Because this is a medically significant snake as well. So it needs to all this work needs to translate back down to mitigating grassroots snake bite in this region. So yeah, naming it Chamba was the most obvious answer for that. It makes it simpler for us to explain it to, you know, communities out there, to doctors and so on and so forth. But yeah. It's yeah, not the so most that- fun name <laughs> but no yeah. i i like that sentiment anyway and i think yeah the fact that it's medically significant even more so and you mentioned that it is a snake that bites people is it a snake that's biting a lot of people and are the bites severe so then still needs to be a lot of work done on the venom of the snake what we've understood we do a lot of community outreach work working with the forest department working with local clinicians and hospitals over there as well as well as a lot of just door-to-door surveys so not just to find out where snakes are, but also which snakes are causing problems for people. And what we found out was that at high elevations, the agriculture that goes on over there, while this snake doesn't really cause fatalities, there is a report of one fatality in Sikkim, which is way up on the eastern side of India. But apart from that, there's no fatalities recorded, but it does seem to bite in that region and those valleys the most number of people than any other snake. But the it doesn't really cause any fatalities as such, but it does cause, you know, local swelling, necrosis, those sorts of things that are quite typical of a pit viper. Right, okay. And yeah. so this is a snake that's biting people some of the time. And what is the habitat like? Because I was reading in the paper that it's quite a high elevation. So, like, is there snow on the ground? Is it an icy place? Oh, yeah. So during the winter, the snow line comes down. There's glaciers not far away from where we sampled. Massive glaciers that essentially feed most of... 
India's like northern river basins and Pakistan's river basins. So it's a very weird habitat to be herping in, especially if you come from southern tropical, you're more used to like your Southeast Asian stuff. And um, it's alpine habitat in general. There's a lot of alpine forests. There is also a lot of areas that aren't natural wild growing forests, but grow in like for basically like large plantations for like woodlands and things like that. But it's really rocky. There is definitely snow that comes down there. There's a massive layer of snow that will actually be there right now in this time of the month. Also, the winters, we're pretty certain that they hibernate. One of the very cool projects that I thought that would be awesome to work on them would be something like, you know, trying to find hibernaculars for these snakes because they're insane. Like, they're the highest elevation at which a snake was recorded was a gloidius, gloidius himalayanus. That was in Kashmir. So, yeah, it's 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 weird habitat. It's, it's alpine forests, loads of thickets of, like, it is temperate zone, but... So it's a weird like amalgamation of uh, Himalayan habitats over there because it does drop down to lowlands. So you do have river streams and breaks in the in the habitat from water bodies, but all that freezes over, all that dies down during the dry season. And um, yeah, it's also part where there's loads of landslides, so it made like field work a lot more difficult over there as well. Landslides, yeah, that's a pretty serious risk, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, as this right, you've got plans to go back to uh, Himachal Pradesh with Captive and Field Herpetology for another project or to continue this project? We definitely, as a, so the collaboration is called the Bites Collaboration in within which Captain Field is a participant of it as well. The idea is that we do have one more year of the permit, which is, which is 2023 for that particular state. And we would like to go back out there. Plans are being made as of now, but... Although the last expedition was really successful, it is a place which is tough. It's not exactly an easy, oh, it's your first time out in the field to go there and look for snakes because they're not as commonly found as what you would find in other locations. It's a lot more harder, like I was saying, landslides, things like that. There's a lot of logistics in place as well that need to be managed. So we're definitely planning it this year. It might be a smaller team, might be a smaller window because we're just targeting certain parts because it took us three years, sampling across three years for us to uh, create the, the specimen list that we had before we actually published. And so we've done a fairly thorough amount of sampling in that state. We just need to cover a few more gaps and that's what it. Right. Okay. And if, am I right in saying there's um, an opportunity for people to come and join in on these trips if they're so inclined? Yeah. So we do have it across. Captain Field runs an India trip every year. We do have one right now that's running in 2023 in Mizoram. So that's in the northeast of India. It's in the northeast of India, but the biogeography is Southeast Asian. So you find Tokyo geckos, you find your green pit vipers like Trimeris erythrus, uh, Pope's pit viper, Popeye, Popurum, Protobothrops, things like that, uh, monocelid cobras. So yeah, right now we're planning the running trips over there. We do have slots available. You can find on the website for the expedition details, things like that, and um, or get in touch with me or Ben Owens. He's the guy who runs it. He's the big boss. <laughs> so, <laughs> right yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put a link yeah. in the show notes. All right, Suresh. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me and uh, yeah, telling us a little bit more about Gloidius Chambensis. Um, yeah, really fascinating to hear about how it was found and uh, yeah, the ongoing work in India. So yeah, good luck with the rest of it. Thank you for having me. See ya. Cool. So thanks very much to Suresh Catalan for joining us and talking about their new species. Gloidius chambensis. A beautiful snake, yeah. Yeah, so have you got any other business, Ben? I don't. Nope. I, nope. Okay, I just have one thing. So we had an email from John Duke. John 
he's a student at Bangor, actually. I know John, he's a friend of mine, and uh, he's not a herpetologist. He likes, he is a herpetologist. He likes herpetology, but he doesn't study herpetology. I think he's a mammal, mammalogist, but we don't, we don't let that get in the way of our friendship. <laughs> but he had just finished listening to episode 141, Mountain Dragons, and he says, you discussed the southernmost lizard, and while Leah Lamus still takes the title for southernmost lizard, you guys forgot about the abundance of lizards just down from Tasmania on New Zealand. So this is when we were talking about the mountain dragons, uh, Rankinia dimensis from Australia and Tasmania. We were talking about them being southern and we neglected to realise that New Zealand was just literally right there in our periphery. And of course, they have their own lizards. And John says, for a treat, look up the gorgeous harlequin gecko, Tuku Tuku Rakure. Did you get that, Ben? Uh, harlequin gecko, yes. <laughs> yes. Ooh, very pretty that's cool oh lovely that is absolutely nuts and actually yeah that sort of uh bizarre that camouflage is uh kind of similar to the old rankinia actually in mm-hmm. some ways that gecko is bonkers though wow thank <laughs> you for showing up with us <laughs> yeah so, they've got such short chubby <laughs> limbs <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh they're amazing uh, and then john says keep up the amazing work love the podcast cheers john thank you all right yeah, yeah well i think that just about does it for our episode on Little Vipers and the cold. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. If we got anything wrong, if you want to correct us. And equally, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us and the podcast. Um, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>